I think if you're over the age of 70, Doug, if you have a hip fracture, it's like 40 or 50% of people are dead within the next year or something. It's crazy high. So if we're talking about longevity here, then really setting up an exercise program as early as possible to prevent a fall by being stronger and having better stability and also by building strong bones to reduce our chance of having a fracture if we do fall, which may occur, is going to go a, a really, really long way to re- reducing our our risk of either A, having our quality of life significantly affected or, in fact, dying prematurely because we find ourselves in a hospital lying down, bedridden. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and as promised, today is part two of my recent discussion with Lane Norton and Simon Hill. We cover insulin, insulin resistance, gut health, exercise, and longevity. So with that said, let's get this conversation going and welcome Simon Hill and Lane Norton back to the Adversity Advantage podcast. I think within the context of what we're talking about and like how certain foods make us feel, I think it would be good. And Lane, since you kind of just wrapped up with your two cents on that, I think Simon might be good for you to start with this question in that like insulin's become like one of the latest buzzwords to blow up on social media and like the rise of the diabetes crisis and people saying that your insulin levels, your blood sugar should kind of flatline. Does insulin matter as much as it may appear online and what, in your opinion, is the best approach to combating insulin resistance? Is it low carb or low fat? I have come full circle in my thinking about this topic. And I've kind of, I think I've been drawn into various diet tribes at certain times. And now I'm kind of of a position, and I'd love to hear Lane's thoughts on this, that insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, we are probably making it more complex than it needs to be. I think it's actually relatively simple. I don't think it's easy to address. I think that's a different question. I think the problem and the development of insulin resistance, I think we understand. And I think certainly excessive adiposity, I'd say some people may wonder why why are some people that become overweight seem to be relatively protected against insulin resistance and don't develop type 2 diabetes. And I think a variety of reasons we probably don't fully understand yet. Some people are more susceptible than others to develop insulin resistance some of this could be genetic. Some of it, Doug, seems to come down to where you preferentially store fat. This seems to be really, really important. Some of us have a greater capacity to store fat subcutaneously. And if that's the case for us, well, we're actually quite lucky because for other folks who could be the same, have the same total body fat, they more preferentially store fat around their organs, particularly around the liver and the pancreas which sort of kickstarts this cascade of insulin resistance. It makes it harder to get glucose into the muscle cells, but it also makes it harder to keep blood glucose down by shutting off the entrance of glucose from the liver into the blood. And so I think that there is this, and Roy Taylor talks about this idea of a personal fat threshold. So some of us have a little bit more leeway than others in terms of how much fat can we gain before it begins to affect insulin resistance to the point where our blood glucose starts to go out of the normal range into more of like a pre-diabetic range and then into type 2 diabetes. And it does seem to lead back, a lot of it seems to lead back to extra fat within the liver in particular. And some of Roy Taylor's early work, Doug, and and the reason I say that I think that we've overcomplicated this conversation a little bit is that we know relatively clearly that we can get some 
incredible outcomes for people that have prediabetes and type 2 diabetes through weight loss. And it seems that sort of 10, 15% of body weight, particularly about 15% of body weight, seems to be about a, a sort of key level of weight loss where most people can go, and this is subject to how long you've had type 2 diabetes for. So if you've had type 2 diabetes for 20 plus years, then losing weight and going into remission is going to be a, a lot harder or can be a lot harder than someone who's only had type 2 diabetes for, say, 10 years and has more function of their beta cells in their pancreas, which are the cells that produce insulin. Someone who's had type 2 diabetes for 20-odd years, those cells can be a little bit more worn out, so the results can differ. But Roy Taylor's work does show relatively clearly that if you get this 15% of weight loss, you can reverse insulin resistance, in many cases put type 2 diabetes into remission. So then we're, we're left in this position of, okay, well, we understand how significant weight loss is. And I should say, if someone has pre-diabetes, it, it might not be 15%. It might be a little bit less than that in terms of the, the weight loss required to get into remission. It's a bit of a sliding scale. But then it, we just end up back at this same point, Doug, which is, okay, well, what's the best diet for weight loss? And, you know, we've gone around circles. We've spoken about this in, in the last episode. There doesn't seem to be one single best diet for weight loss and Yes, there are anecdotes, and because there are anecdotes, there are lots and lots of loud people online that are proclaiming that their diet is the single best way for everyone, and that's because they're using their personal experience and then sort of assuming that that would also work best for everyone else around them. But to date, what we understand is that there is going to be different dietary patterns that work best for, for different folks. Lane just uh, alluded to it earlier that um, there are a number of different ways to restrict calories and promote a calorie deficit. And that could be looking at portion control. It could be counting your calories. It could be time-restricted eating. There are all of these different tools. And that's a great thing because it means that there are lots of different tools and there's different choice and you can play around and find something that works for you. Also, I think we should acknowledge the importance of when you're choosing some form of restriction, how well that's also accepted by your family can be really important too in terms of adherence. So if you choose, if you say, well, I'm going to do a low carb ketogenic diet and the rest of your family loves eating that way and your spouse enjoys cooking that way as well, then you're probably going to do a lot better than if your, the rest of your family enjoys a low-carb, animal-based ketogenic diet and you choose a vegan diet. So there's a lot more than just the individual here as well when it comes to adherence. But that was a long way of, of saying that I think we're overcomplicating insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes and weight loss seems to be really, really important here. It is important to discuss a few different mechanisms here. Simon talked about fat thresholds. So it's really interesting. Human adipocytes, which are your fat cells, there's pretty decent evidence that they have kind of a maximum size that they can get to before it really starts to place quite a bit of stress on the extracellular matrix of the adipose tissue. And at that point, so essentially, what is diabetes? Well, if you look, or type 2 diabetes, if you look at type 2 diabetes, you have elevations in the blood of pretty much everything. Like you see amino acids are elevated in the blood. You see fatty acids are elevated in the blood. You see glucose is elevated in the blood. And a lot of intermediates are also elevated in the blood. Why is that? Well, you literally just have run out of room to put stuff. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but also kind of not. And so... Interestingly, people who tend to be more resistant to getting type 2 diabetes, even with weight gain, they tend to have more fat cells. So they have more total fat mass that they can get to before they run out of room to put it away. In fact, one of the treatments for type 2 diabetes are PPAR gamma agonists. And basically what they do is stimulate your body to create new fat cells. And so... Now you have more, so when you use them, what you see is blood glucose goes down, but you're also creating new fat cells. So it's kind of like, uh, which is better, which is worse. 
So, and then I think there is something what Simon said too, which is, okay, once you appear to exceed whatever threshold it is, now you also start depositing it around your organs. Certainly, liver fat especially seems to be extremely predictive of a lot of cardiometabolic problems uh, that happen and insulin reductions in insulin sensitivity. That mechanistic stuff tends to be pretty complicated. But the solution is not, which is we need to get this stuff that's in the bloodstream out of the bloodstream, right? So how do we do that? Well, if you increase lean mass or you get more active, your skeletal muscle will start going through more of these substrates and pull more in in order to basically provide energy for the work it's doing. So we do see improvements even with like really modest changes in body weight and sometimes not even with changes in body weight. If people start exercising, you will see improvements in insulin sensitivity and some of these other markers as well. Now, as far as weight loss goes, when we look at hard outcomes, like I don't, again, when people bring up all these, these studies come out and it's like, oh, look at this thing with insulin and, and look at this. And I go, but the human outcome data though. So we have just an absolute cornucopia of different studies that vary carbohydrate and fat intake, but account for calories and show essentially that when you equate protein and calories, and the reason it's important to equate protein is because of the thermic effect of protein like we discussed. It also seems to help retain, help you with lean mass retention during a caloric deficit, which could have implications uh, also for better retention of uh, your BMR. But if we equate calories and protein, we just don't see differences overall in weight loss or fat loss. And we also have a meta-analysis by NAUD, I think from 2014, where they looked at like some different cardiometabolic markers in response to isoenergetic, low carb versus mixed diets. And again, basically the takeaway was the vast majority of these metabolic improvements from diets are due to the weight loss itself. It was really interesting. There was a paper that came out and the paper's conclusion was, well, Reductions in HbA1c are linearly associated with decreasing amounts of carbohydrate in the diet. And a lot of low carvers kind of like put this up as like spiking the football as to, you know, how C. Lane was wrong. And when you look at the actual data itself, reductions in carbohydrates were just reductions in calories. And so as they reduced calories overall, their weight reduced overall, and you could still tie back over 70% of the improvements in HbA1c to just reductions in body weight. Now, I will say low carb may improve some of these markers a little bit faster in terms of like the initial few weeks, like especially when it comes to like maybe fasting blood glucose and some other things. But on the long term, it's really about decreasing adiposity. And there was actually a study like back in the, I think it was in the 1970s. I want to say they called it the rice diet. They took obese men and women. And we're talking about people with like, who were over a hundred pounds overweight. And they basically had them eat their carbohydrates from white rice, white bread, fruit juice, and sugar. Okay. Now they were in a calorie deficit, but these people, like the average weight loss was a hundred pounds. And it completely resolved their metabolic problems, like in terms of, you know, type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes or whatever it is. And then if we just look at the most effective treatment for obesity that we have currently, which is semiglutide. So semiglutide increases post-meal insulin secretion substantially. So again, this kind of just completely destroys the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity because despite increases in post-meal insulin, people have a suppression in appetite, eat less, and end up on average losing about 15% body weight, and they improve their insulin sensitivity over time. And again, the, some of the low-carb community has said, well, see, but insulin drops over time. But the whole point of the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity is that the short-term changes in insulin matter. And 
the only reason their insulin is dropping over time is because their body weight is decreasing, not because there's some kind of magic to semiglutide long-term lowering their fasting insulin. And I think this is where a lot of people get really confused too, is they, and even scientists, it blows my mind how many scientists do not understand the difference between an acute response versus long-term dysregulated signaling. And what I mean by that is, Having an increase in blood glucose or an increase in blood insulin in the short term means almost nothing for long-term health. I don't want to say it means absolutely nothing just because, just like I don't know there's not a teacup orbiting Saturn, I don't want to say there's absolutely not a teacup orbiting Saturn, but I'm pretty sure there's not a teacup orbiting Saturn. But the people, they look at, well, this food increases insulin more in the short term, and we see these metabolic signals. Those metabolic signals are completely normal based on the physiological condition you're in. Now, if you see increased insulin and insulin signaling in absence of food, that's a problem. That's dysregulated signaling. And so what I always say to these people who put so much emphasis on short-term changes in insulin is, do you think exercise is bad for you? Because exercise in the short term raises your inflammation raises your reactive oxygen species, increases your heart rate, increases your blood pressure, can increase your blood glucose as well. But exercise on the long term is great for you. So I think the point I want to emphasize, and all diet tribes do this, where it's like even if you look at the game changers, like they made a big deal out of like post-meal flow-mediated dilation. And it's like, okay, who cares? <laughs> I hate to say it. We should only care about these acute measures if we don't have long-term outcome data. But we have long-term outcome data, and it's pretty clear. If you just lose enough body weight, you'll see resolution of type 2 diabetes, insulin sensitivity, and these cardiometabolic markers. The funny thing about that the flow-mediated dilation example is that there's actually a meta-analysis looking at olive oil consumption and long-term FMD, so more chronically, and you see that olive oil consumption actually improves FMD if you're looking at outside of the acute window, but those that are kind of anti-all oils often overlook that. When I read papers that look at short-term responses in signaling and try to equate that to disease outcomes. I really just look at those short-term signals and, and think about what is the body trying to do in this very moment? And then I follow that away as, hmm, that's interesting. Wake me up when we have long-term outcome data. So one of the things I wanted to follow up on is one of the reasons I think things like insulin and blood sugar get brought up is you'll say, you'll hear people say, well, I don't want to eat like a high carb meal and then have this massive blood sugar crash and then I'm like low energy or I'm hungry again, and then I have to eat more food. Like what are both of your thoughts on that? If you suffer from digestive issues like gas, bloating, cramping, even when you're eating healthy, nutritious foods, then you could probably benefit from a high quality enzyme. If you've never tried enzymes, or even if you've tried and they haven't worked, I want you to give this one a chance. As you know, I'm a big fan of the company Bioptimizers. They are one of the few supplement companies who have the best formulations and use the highest quality ingredients and their products work. I asked them if we could organize a great deal for all of my listeners and they over-delivered. Right now, you can get a bottle of Mazimes for free. All you need to do is pay a small shipping fee and there's no catch. There's no tricks, no forced continuity, and nothing to cancel. They are so confident in their products that they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee, so I'm positive you'll be satisfied with the results. Mazimes is a 17-enzyme full-spectrum formula, plus it contains all the key enzymes needed for optimal digestion. So many individuals suffer from digestive issues because any protein your body doesn't break down can lead to digestive distress, gas, bloating, and constipation. Mazimes can help ensure that all the protein that you consume breaks down into absorbable amino acids. So I strongly suggest that you head on over to their site to grab your bottle before they either run out or take down this offer. Go to mazimes.com slash Doug Free. That's M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com forward slash Doug Free, which is all one word. And you will automatically get access to your unique coupon code to claim your free bottle. Limit one per household. Offer is valid while supplies last. You're going to love their products. So go now. 
Now let's get back to the show. So this is the kind of reactive hypoglycemia model of appetite. There's almost no data to back this up in terms of being like a major contributor to appetite. First off, anybody who's ever had reactive hypoglycemia, it's not like normal hunger. In fact, you can feel hungry, but you're more like hot, anxious, and shaky. Like I don't have oatmeal in the morning and then I'm like two hours later, like, oh God, oh God. Now there are some people maybe more sensitive to that and it may be that you know they need to consume a little, if they're gonna have carbohydrate or simple carbohydrates, they need to make sure that's mixed in with some other things to blunt that GI response. But as far as like the reason people eat, honestly, that is, has been ingrained as such dogma in the low carb community. Part of me believes that the reason people feel hungry two or three hours after they have a high carb meal is because they've been told they will feel hungry two to three hours after a high carb meal. So yeah, I, I just, the long-term outcome data just simply doesn't support that idea. And I think it's become trendy to post your CGM graph and, and sort of chart the, the food you ate and what your response was. And, and that overlooks so many other factors, how stressed you are, how well did you sleep? What was your meal that you had prior to that one? Because that'll affect your response. You know, how well did you sleep? There are so many different things that are affecting that. And Doug, I think that's kind of where you were going with that because you, you see a lot of that on, on social now. There's not much data to support this idea of the flatter, the better, or trying to, to kind of blunt that in the acute postprandial period being better for long-term health outcomes compared to say something that had a larger rise, but was still within the normal physiological range. So I think we kind of need to be careful with some of those oversimplifications and, and probably be a little bit more skeptical there's a lot of hype around blood glucose right now and there's technologies involved. It's become, uh, it's a wearable, it is a wearable and we can kind of get lost in the hype and forget, well, what does the data actually show? And is this actually meaningful? Because do you want to be going around spending your whole day with your attention? Because it requires energy to focus in on this stuff. Is it the best use of your energy and your attention or is that better elsewhere in terms of sanity, but also your health. And I would argue that I think people are reading too much in to CGM data. We don't have the data that actually supports the way that these are being used in, 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 all, in some circumstances. Certainly there are some circumstances, someone who has type 2 diabetes, for example, or type 1 diabetes, these things have enormous utility. They're really, really helpful. But I think that their utility in the general public, there's probably less data to support that than many people are being led to believe. I want to be fair because I think I've had a little bit of a knee jerk to the cringy, I'm posting my blood glucose response from every single meal online and look how flat it is, crew. I think for some people, CGMs may have benefit, especially people who kind of like to gamify stuff, you know, like... Let me put it this way. If somebody's wearing a CGM and they're seeing like, oh man, I have that packet of M&Ms and I get quite a bit of a rise in blood sugar. Maybe I'm going to move to vegetables and fruits and I see that I have a lower rise in my blood sugar and so I'm going to do more of that. Yeah, I think that's fine. If you're instead, you know, just pounding bacon and butter and whatnot because, oh, look, my CGM is super flat. It's like, well, you're, you're kind of missing the point, right? So I just think it's all about how it's being used. I think when we get too dogmatic about anything, that's the outcome, right? Like we, we know kind of like no matter what dietary pattern you choose or the dietary patterns that work, the one common theme is you're eating not a whole lot of saturated fat, you're limiting your calories, you're eating a lot of fiber from fruits and vegetables, you're eating lean protein sources, so we know the things that work. So and that and that carries over even I talk about like the right way to do the plant a plant-based diet as well as the right way to do a ketogenic diet, right? So you've got people who do a plant-based diet who are like, "Well, you know, this mac and cheese is plant-based and this these chicken wings are plant-based, right?" And like it's like, "No, you're missing the point, you know? Like same thing for keto, right? Like now you've got, you know, 
keto ice creams, and I'm, I'm going to call it somebody in particular, like uh, Dr. Tro just rages against the food industry that makes everybody sick. Meanwhile, he sells keto treats that are highly processed. And I mean, again, that's his right to do that. But some of these keto-friendly treats have more calories than the actual stuff. Like if you ever looked at the ice creams at the supermarket, they got more calories than the regular ice cream. And so it's like you're now becoming dogmatic about the method you're using and you're no longer actually using it in a way that's going to facilitate what you want to happen. So I think we just got to be careful about that sort of stuff. But I think for people who like to gamify things, CGMs are then maybe they'll be a useful tool, right? But just don't become dogmatic about it. And again, people really, they don't understand that acute rises in blood glucose, blood insulin, it doesn't necessarily reflect long-term outcomes. In fact, there was a study that looked at post-meal insulin secretion and weight gain over time and basically found that there was very little to no association with post-meal insulin secretion versus weight gain over time. It didn't seem to predict it. So again, who cares? A good study as a starting point for CGMs in general public would be just taking a large group of people, getting them wearing a CGM and looking at their diet quality over time. So does that actual biofeedback lead, lead to a net improvement in diet quality? Does diet quality stay the same? Does it get worse? And that would be a great starting point for us to kind of start to determine their utility. Yeah, I actually spoke to uh, Peter Atia about this. Uh, we've had quite a few conversations. And uh, he does use that with some of his uh, longevity clients. And he was the one who actually mentioned like, you know, I don't think it's doing anything magical, but they're kind of gamifying things. Now there could be some like selection bias with the population that's, you know, using these stuff because, you know, these people are usually pretty affluent and, you know, are more tinkerers than your average person. But I agree with Simon, you know, we may, if we give it to a hundred people or 150 people or whatever, and look at their diet quality, it may be that they just never put two and two together and actually them being able to see Oh, when I eat this, when I eat X, Y happens, I never put this together. And so now I'm actually going to change my habits. If that happens, great. But if it doesn't, then, you know, what is the actual utility? But again, I think it's very individual. And if you as an individual find that, hey, you know, this is actually like motivating for me, like a carrot on the end of the stick. Like, so like I have a nutritional coaching app called Carbon Diet Coach that I helped uh, create. And one of the things that we were discussing is kind of gamifying the app where like if they get like multiple consecutive check-ins, they get like a badge and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, my wife has referred to me kind of as a robot, not as a negative, but like if I just, if something makes sense to me and I trust it, I just do it. I don't need a buy-in. Like I just do it. And everybody's like, yeah, this would be great. This will improve compliance. And I'm kind of like, really? That would improve compliance? And everybody's like, yeah, man, people love games. And I'm like, oh, I just figured like getting to the goals would be enough. I'm like really weird that way, but I had never you know, thought of this whole gamifying process until like the team brought it up. One of the things that, that helps all of these things, whether it be your ability to manage blood sugar, whether it be your ability to lose weight, whether it be like your ability to have more um, of a flexible approach with your diet and the amount of protein you eat is exercise. And I kind of want to shift gears for a second because we hear so much about nutrition these days when it comes to improving health outcomes and not nearly as much with regards to exercise, despite the overwhelming amount of evidence to support its benefits. Like what role do you think exercise plays and longevity. Simon, if you want to start, I'm um, just because Lane just finished up. A huge role in terms of longevity and probably it does get less airtime, doesn't it, than nutrition. Let's be honest. It's not quite as sexy because most of us agree on it, I think. <laughs> so it gives us less to talk about and maybe less to differentiate ourselves from the next person with regards to. So for that reason, it takes a back seat, but it shouldn't. And I, you know, 
I guess you could argue that once you understand the kind of basic principles of a, of a healthy diet, then you should be turning most, if not all of your attention towards setting up some, uh, an exercise regime across the week that targets different types of systems. So making sure that you have exercise that's working your cardiovascular system um, and increasing your VO2 max, for example, which is a kind of a typical measurement of cardiorespiratory fitness. We know that you know, people who have uh, higher VO2 max, Doug, depends on the study that you look at. But if you look at someone who has low cardiorespiratory fitness versus someone who has high, and you're going to get cardiorespiratory fitness through, you know, it could be moderate kind of intensity, continuous training, like imagine sitting on a bike, a steady state, going for 45 minutes or an hour or, or going for a slow jog you will get some improvement in your VO2 max from that type of training and you'll get improvements, arguably better bang for your buck in for VO2 max from high intensity kind of interval type training. You'll get improvements from both of those, but people that are, that are regularly doing that on, on a weekly basis and have higher VO2 max, their risk reduction for mortality over a kind of, which means premature death or death during say a five or 10 year period, depending on the study you're looking at, can be four to five times less risk for that group that are really, really fit, have high cardiorespiratory fitness compared to someone who has a much lower cardiorespiratory fitness level. And that is a risk reduction that's much, much bigger than you would see in nutrition. Depending on the study, it's actually bigger than smoking and not smoking. It's bigger than alcohol consumption. So I guess just to kind of compare some of these different aspects of our lifestyle in terms of how powerful they are, how powerful they are at reducing our risk of cardiovascular disease and premature death, exercise is right up there. And here's the, the great thing, that will, something that I think is, is incredible, is that a large portion of that risk reduction is actually achieved from going from doing basically nothing or very little to just doing a little bit. So again, we probably don't have to overcomplicate it. If everyone could commit to a kind of minimum level and for example, Doug, just doing a four minute high intensity interval, which is basically taking your body to say 90% of your heart rate max for four minutes, okay? And if you were able to do that three times a week, okay? Four minutes, say, on Monday, four minutes on, say, Thursday, and four minutes on Saturday, right? There are studies showing over an eight to 10-week period, you can improve your VO2 max by about 10%. Now, in that same study, actually doing three four-minute intervals, so three times the dose across those three days, Yes, it improved VO2 max a little bit more, but it was only a couple of percent. So just doing four minutes of this high-intensity interval training three times a week led to a 10% improvement in VO2 max. And based on epidemiological studies, Doug, that's, that could be 20 30% reduction in risk of, of cardiovascular disease. We're talking 12 minutes of exercise over the week plus a warm-up. And of course, I'd love people to do more than that, but I'm kind of just trying to illustrate that a very small dose can have such a huge effect. And these effects are peripheral in the, in the, in the muscle, but also are central. So your stroke volume, your heart rate, cardiac output, and I'm not sure how much more detail you kind of want to go into. I'll throw over to Lane. We could get a lot more detailed in terms of prescriptions, but Yes, exercise is hugely important. It doesn't get enough airtime, and it's it's well worth us spending more more time focusing on. Hundred percent. So, did my PhD in nutrition. I love nutrition, and as I said on Joe Rogan's podcast four years ago, people spend so much time in the minutia of nutrition and don't even exercise, which is like stepping over dollars to pick up pennies. It really is. And especially when you consider the lifestyle modification needed to incorporate kind of good nutrition compared to what most people's normal nutrition is in a Western diet. As Simon just said, like 12 minutes a week, 12 minutes, 
there's so many different charts, like looking at various aspects of exercise and mortality and the inflection points are so ridiculously striking. You look at grip strength, like grip strength after age 65 is incredibly tightly correlated to mortality. So, or sorry, inversely correlated to mortality. So is lean body mass. Not only that, it's inversely associated with the likelihood of becoming disabled. And not only will you reduce your risk of mortality, you will drastically increase your quality of life, right? A lot of people talk about longevity, but I don't think many people are interested in living to age 80 if 15 years of that is confined to a wheelchair and in an assisted living facility, right? I think everybody's ideal sort of longevity is, okay, you know, live into my 80s and even, you know, when things start to break down and maybe, you know, I get close to death, I'm still mobile and having a high quality of life for the vast majority of that, except for maybe the very end. In fact, I, I think about uh, my grandfather who died at age 84. He had his first heart attack at age 52. And this is back in the 70s when open heart surgery was like, you know, carpentry. <laughs> now it's an outpatient, you know, sort of thing. And they, like, I mean, literally he has a scar from like his upper chest to his lower chest where they broke his sternum, cracked his ribs open and did heart surgery, right? And I think his life expectancy was something like five years after that was the average life expectancy at the time. And he made a lot of lifestyle modifications. You know, he did the, the dreaded low fat diet and reduced his saturated fat and, you know, started exercising in terms of like walking and like just, I mean, he just walked was pretty much his exercise. And he was fortunate enough to live till 84. And I remembered it was the first time I ever had thought about like dying. He died in his home lucid for the vast majority of it, talking to his family. And then when he passed, it was very peaceful. And I remember thinking, man, if I could go like that, like what would that be worth, you know, compared to the way a lot of people unfortunately go, uh, which is with much less dignity, right? And I think a lot of it was the lifestyle modifications he made and the exercise he did. But if you just look at a graph of steps versus mortality, there is a huge drop off in the risk of mortality just going from 2,000 to 8,000 steps a day. To get 8,000 steps a day, if you were completely sedentary and did almost nothing, if you just did an hour walk per day, you'd probably get to 8,000, okay? Now that might sound like a lot. Most people aren't that sedentary. Like I, I would not consider myself a super active person other than my resistance training that I do. But I get about 8,000 steps a day without even really trying. And that's mostly just because I'm like pacing around while I'm resistance training. But for most people, even with a sedentary job, you're going to get three or 4,000 steps per day just doing your basic human stuff. So you're talking about adding a 30-minute walk every day. Like listen to a podcast or heck, put on a Netflix show and go walk or – don't even go anywhere and walk. Just get like a little treadmill in your bedroom or your living room or wherever you want it. Watch TV and walk. You can do it. So just doing that, sharp drop off. And then it continues to drop off to a lesser extent as you go even up to like 20,000 steps a day. Same thing with grip strength. Same thing with lean mass. Same thing with VO2 max, like Simon just said. So... I think the problem is a lot of people have looked at fitness people like myself or people with six pack abs or whatever, and they look at what they do and they go, well, I, I could never do it like that and I'll never look like that, so I can't be fit. You don't have to, you really don't. In fact, to get that lean is probably actually not conducive for health, to be quite honest. Um, if you've got a shredded six pack, and as somebody who's had a shredded six pack, you don't feel very good when you have that. And I would say your quality of life is probably pretty crappy as well. Just remember for anybody out there who, you know, feels less than because you don't have a shredded six pack. Most of those people are food obsessed, have disordered eating patterns and have zero sex drive and very low energy. So just feel a little bit better about yourself. But you don't need to be like that. You don't need to be exercise obsessed. In fact, a lot of these curves are J-shaped with mortality, 
where when you get to like really high levels of exercise, you actually see like the risk kind of start to go back up. Now I don't, I don't, I'm not ready to say that the exercise is somehow independently increasing risk. There could be some other lifestyle factors that are tied to that. Like people at that level of exercise are usually probably pretty extreme personalities. So I think there could be some other lifestyle and stress things that are going on there. But to just get like that benefit, just do three days a week of 30 minutes of something, even if it's just walking. And then I would say I'm a big advocate for resistance training because not only do you get some of those VO2 max benefits uh, if you're lifting hard, you get the benefits of muscle mass and not just muscle mass but also quality, uh, which is huge. If There's a, a really popular image out there of an MRI scan or maybe it's an ultrasound of a 70-year-old sedentary person's quadricep and then an Ironman somebody who does Ironmans at age 70's quadricep and the difference in muscle quality is absolutely striking. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. So you're getting all the benefits, you're getting a lot of the benefits of cardiovascular and you're also getting uh, benefits in muscle mass and bone mineral density. That's another thing that people really overlook. Like people worry about calcium and vitamin D resistance training is literally the biggest lever you can pull with bone mineral density. When I went in at age 20, I got a, a DEXA stand scan for body composition, but they also measure bone mineral density. And I was almost off the chart in terms of bone mineral density. So again, it's just such a low hanging fruit to go from sedentary to doing something like Simon said. And then if you can add a little bit of resistance training on top of that, and people are like, well, you know, I don't know if I could do squats and don't, don't, don't do machines, but just, you know, do it to where it's hard and you're going to get amazing results, to be honest. No, I would totally agree that if you're going to dedicate some time to a program, try and have something that's working that cardiovascular system. And look, there's got all these types of studies about high intensity versus moderate intensity. And the reality is you're going to get benefit from either. Find the one that you're going to do most often. Let's say, for example, you get pain on a treadmill or going for a run. Well, you might be better suited to a cycling and to take the, the weight bearing out of that. Now, arguably, the, the running could be better for your bone density, but if you're still doing some resistance training on the side as well, then you can use that to help improve your strength, maintain your strength, work on bone mineral density. And that it becomes really, really important as we age because if you fall and you have a hip fracture, the risk of mortality in the 12 months following that hip fracture, off the top of my head, I think if you're over the age of 70, Doug, if you have a hip fracture, it's like 40 or 50% of people are dead within the next year or something. It's crazy high. So if we're talking about longevity here, then really setting up an exercise program as early as possible to prevent a fall by being stronger and having better stability and also by building strong bones to reduce our chance of having a fracture if we do fall, which may occur, is going to go a, a really, really long way to re reducing our, our risk of either A, having our quality of life significantly affected or in fact dying prematurely because we find ourselves in a hospital lying down, bedridden. And when you're lying down for two, three weeks, not moving, you can lose a lot of muscle and you can slow down really quickly. So just another kind of a real reason to, to try and be proactive here and add a good exercise program in as early as possible. Now, when you get above age 65, you start to see a shift in like the, the number, like Cardiovascular disease, cancer are still the, like the number one and two killers, but you can also tie a significant portion of deaths back to low muscle mass for the reason that's like Simon just said, if you're over age 65 and you fall and you break a hip or a bone or something like that, the first off, the chances of you walking again, if you weren't active before that are very low. And the chances that you'll get some kind of infection or some comorbidity associated with this fall is very, very high. So again, and the other thing I'll add is people say, well, I've never exercised before. I'm 70 years old. What's the point in starting? No, now is the best time. Now is the best time. 
because, so I was at University of Illinois and I was in the nutritional sciences division, but right across the street at Fur Hall was their exercise physiology division. And they were starting a study when I was starting my PhD there where they were taking frail elderly who basically could barely stand up and they were having them like progressively overload. But the way they were doing it was like they would start with like a really high box squat, right? So they barely like bend their knees and then come back up. And then gradually they'd lower the box. And this was over, I think the course, I, I believe it was 12 weeks. It might've been 16. By the end of the study, not only had they significantly increased their lean mass, their bone density, but some of them were almost able to do a full squat. And some of them were actually using weights to sit down to a box. Like again, so you can build significant lean mass even in your older years and it will absolutely benefit you. So don't let age be a deterrent to starting because it will still make a major benefit for you. Mm. And don't be scared of having a protein shake. I know, for example, my, my, my mom, I suggested to her that she added a protein shake in because I had a look at her overall diet and her appetite has gone down a little bit. And Lane sort of mentioned earlier, it can be harder to get adequate protein in or optimal protein in as someone gets sort of over 65 uh, years old. But she'd come across all this stuff on the internet. And she was worried about the protein powder. And of course, I reassured her and she's been you know, ha happy ever since I had that discussion with her. But I just want to emphasize for someone out there who's doing the exercise, thinking about their diet and is like, well, is adding a protein powder going to be a problem? No. In fact, it can be a very convenient, nice, easy way to help you achieve an optimal protein intake. Yeah. And this is where we got to be very careful with the messaging, right? Like a lot of people are very anti-artificial anything, you know, like get it from Whole Foods. Whole Foods is always better. I mean, yeah, if you can get it from Whole Foods, great, but getting it from a protein powder is better than not getting enough protein at all. So let's just like keep in mind where this messaging should be. And I think that's like one of the things I appreciate about Simon and probably I would think one of the things he appreciates about me is whenever we talk about data, we try to wrap it in the proper context because we've just seen how many people can create weird associations based on messages that are well-intentioned, but possibly not painting the entire picture. I think one of those messages that has good intentions, but might not be painting the entire picture is something you see a lot right now in terms of gut health. I feel like there's been so many people that have grasped onto gut health, the microbiome, and essentially has just cast it as being like, if you're feeling sick, your gut health's off. If you're depressed, gut health, anxiety, gut health, gut health, gut health. So I would love to get your both of your thoughts on this as, as people that have studied a lot of this and have been around the game for a long time. Like, Is the hype on gut health as real as it appears to be on social media? So one of my colleagues, when I was doing my PhD, Suzanne Devkota, she was doing her master's in the same lab I was. She has now gone to become one of the world's leading experts in the gut microbiome. And her exact words to me when we met up a year ago for dinner when I was in California was, we really don't know that much. We can run testing and, and figure out if your microbiome has changed, if there's a shift. We know certain things affect it. We don't really have a great idea of what a healthy gut microbiome looks like. It appears that it's possible that like more diversity is a good thing. And there do appear to be some particular like phylums of bacteria that possibly are associated with better health outcomes. But we know so precious little. We really do. And what we do think we know right now is the following. Exercise actually appears to be good for the gut, for your gut microbiome. There's some interplay there. Fiber, very good. Prebiotic fibers, very good for your gut microbiome. Possibly limiting saturated fat as well, because not because of the saturated fat itself, but because of the, the byproduct of the saturated fat mixed with bile. That appears to have some negative uh, outcomes on some of the bacteria that we believe to be healthy. And don't eat too much. That's kind of what we know right now, to be quite honest. And I think a lot of the, the misunderstanding too is people don't really understand what gut health is. And then they'll say things like, well, 
you know, my gut health is screwed up because I'm bloated and gassy all the time. And I'm like, you're, you're talking about two different things, actually. One of those is possibly like some kind of inflammatory bowel disorder or digestive disorder, but that's not necessarily your gut microbiome. In fact, I would argue if you're producing a lot of gas and short chain fatty acids, that is actually the marker of a healthy gut microbiome. And I would say that a lot of these people who think that their gut microbiome is unhealthy are actually mistaking that for possible IBS. So I know like not to change it too much, but IBS has kind of become a catch-all for, you know, undiagnosed like GI pain or discomfort, but we're starting to understand it a little bit more. And it appears that people with IBS, they're much more sensitive to pressure in their GI than people who don't have IBS. So they actually did a study where they inserted something in, in people's uh, digestive tract and they put the same amount of pressure on people who reported they had, you know, like IBS symptoms versus normal people. And they found that at the exact same pressure, people with IBS symptoms reported significantly more pain and discomfort than people who didn't. So IBS may be a situation where people are just producing the normal amount of gas in response to certain things or certain formidable fibers, but they're just experiencing more pain because they're more sensitive to it. So again, I want to separate these things because people think about gut health as microbiome. And so then when they have GI discomfort, they assume that, oh, I must have an unhealthy microbiome. And those two things are, are probably very different things. Doug, I think people, particularly on social media, probably think we know more about the microbiome than, than we actually do. There's a lot of associations. For example, the, the word dysbiosis comes up a lot which essentially means a loss of balance so or diversity. Lane spoke there about diversity. Dysbiosis is defined but is can be somewhat vague and can kind of mean something different in one study compared to the next. But what I mean by this is that, say, you look at conditions. It could be um, neurodegenerative conditions or it could even be obesity or metabolic conditions or IBS. Often in studies, you'll look at these people and you'll also observe that they have dysbiosis. But their relationship, which direction that relationship exists in, is not fully determined at all, really, in many of these circumstances. And what I mean by that is there isn't evidence in most of those circumstances to say, is it the microbiome influencing those conditions or is it the other way around? And we need a lot more science to look in and help investigate that relationship. And there are there are folks like the Sonnenbergs, for example, at Stanford University that are actively doing research, as there are many others around the world. So I think we will learn more. I think at this stage, there are some general principles. For example, Lane talked about diversity. It looks like having a diverse sort of more robust microbiome is beneficial. And the Sonnenbergs have actually contributed a lot to that work and going back and looking at hunter-gatherer tribes and then looking at what happens to the microbiome as you live in a more modern industrialized world where perhaps there's over-sanitization, overexposure to antibiotics, less prebiotic substrate because you're eating more processed foods. What, you know, and it seems like what happens when you live a lifestyle like that is you lose some of that diversity. Now, is that explaining the poor health that we're seeing? Maybe. <laughs> it might be. And I think for the moment, there are kind of some good general principles to say, okay, well, based on this observation, what can we do to kind of encourage diversity and move back to, you know, a quote unquote, more kind of traditional human microbiome, as opposed to a, more, a modern industrialized one where we do see more disease. And you know, other than trying to avoid antibiotic overuse, antibiotics are extremely important and at times life-saving. So I want to make that clear, but potentially they could be overused. You know, alcohol seems to negatively affect diversity as well. And then Lane spoke from a um, uh, exercise is really important, but from a dietary perspective, it's these prebiotic substrates. So these compounds in our food that that pass through undigested through the small intestine, land in the large intestine, and then act as food for the bacteria that calls that home. And that includes prebiotic fiber, but it also seems to include polyphenols. At least some polyphenols seem to pass through 
to the um, large intestine where they're metabolized there. A whole lot more research is needed. I think only in the last five or 10 years, it's even been fully appreciated that the some of the metabolites that are produced after the bacteria sort of feed on the polyphenols. And before that, we really had no window into that. And, and so there's all of these metabolites and compounds that we're really just starting to research and understand, well, what are they actually doing? They, many of them are kind of like drug-like molecules, but how they affect our physiology is not fully understood. And resistant starch, so prebiotic fiber, polyphenols, and resistant starch – and, you know, there is evidence to suggest that these compounds are important and that speaks to, you know, why uh, high fiber diets or at least one aspect of why a high fiber diet is showing up in the epidemiology quite consistent, consistently as a way of reducing our risk of, of lots of different chronic diseases. There was a study out very recently, I'm not sure if you saw this, Lane, it was on resistant starch. And I thought this was quite fascinating. It was looking at, it was a randomized controlled trial that looked at a group of people with Lynch syndrome. And Lynch syndrome is this syndrome where you are genetically much more likely to develop cancer, specifically cancers of the GI tract. And they had a two-year randomized controlled trial with a thousand people with Lynch syndrome. And really interesting study. So they, they had a placebo group, a group that was given aspirin, and a group that was given 30 grams of resistant starch a day in a supplement form. And that was for two years. And then they stopped at the end of the, the two-year trial. That was the end of the trial. But they followed these people for a further 10 years, right? And in that 10-year period, they're no longer taking the supplement or, or whatever. They were exposed to it in the two-year period. Those that were, that were given the 30-gram resistant starch supplement had a 60% relative risk reduction in cancer over the 10-year period. So there are examples, sort of single study examples, Doug, like that, that do speak to some of this stuff potentially being, you know, very, very powerful. And we're kind of still trying to piece it together. For the time being, I think eat a, a diet that's high fiber, has a diverse range of plants, and you'll be getting a nice uh, range of exposure to those different prebiotic substrates. Yeah, to your randomized control trial, that's one, very impressive and uh, so much for healthy user bias, I suppose, <laughs> since that's, uh, that tends to be the go-to for the carnivore aficionados. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Simon mentioned, like, there's, we're, we're just finding out, like, all these new substrates. Uh, Suzanne actually told me that they were running a study where they were giving some insoluble fibers, and what they expected to happen was some of these bacteria to die off because just giving the insoluble fiber, you know, we had thought, okay, insoluble fiber, you can't make, can't make anything from it. And they're actually finding that there are some bacteria that are actually flourishing under conditions of high insoluble fiber. And so now she's, I mean, this was in, in animals, so we need a lot more research. But it may be that like hemicellulose and cellulose may not be as quote unquote inert as we thought they were, but probably in a good way. And that leads me to something that we could probably spend an entire episode on. But you mentioned dysbiosis, uh, Simon. And one of the things that I really dislike about that word is it implies that something's wrong or some, some change has been bad. And there was a, a study on, I think it was sucralose a few months ago that came out in humans. Great. I'm glad they used humans and it was a, a reasonable dose. Also great. But they said it, it caused dysbiosis and glucose intolerance, I want to say. So first off, in that study, when I looked at it, the area under the curve for the post-meal uh, glycemic response was no different between groups. And the only difference was at a single time point of 90 minutes, and there was no other time points where it was different. So uh, the real story is it didn't change glycemia because the area under the curve wasn't different. And they also said it caused gut dysbiosis. So I looked at the the bacteria species that increased and decreased and the species that increase, and I, I can't remember the name of it, but I, I looked it up and I looked at how it relates to different health outcomes. So this species that had increased was actually linked to decreased risk of type two diabetes, obesity, and some of these cardiometabolic diseases. So can we really call that dysbiosis? Because that actually seems like it might be a good change. Now, I don't know. It's quite possible 
that becoming obese or uh, type 2 diabetic or having these cardiometabolic diseases negatively impacts the microbiome. And that's why that you see a, a lower amount of this particular bacteria in people with these diseases. But you certainly can't say that it's a bad change just based on that. But since it's a change, we call it dysbiosis. And if that's the case, anytime there's a dietary change, we might as well call it dysbiosis because anytime you change your diet, you'll probably change your gut microflora. And so I really want people to be careful with the verbiage they're using. And when it comes to this stuff, if somebody is trying to sell you a kit, a program, a gut health reset, I hate to say this, but if somebody uses the word gut health and they have something they are selling, you could almost be 99.999% sure that they're absolutely full of crap. Uh, because we just, we, we are just in the initial phases of under, I mean, we, 15 years ago, people were like, were like, oh, gut microbiome, who cares? Like we're just now in the infancy of this research. So unfortunately, we're probably not really going to know much for another 10 years is my guess. One thing I'll add, Doug, just to give, give some folks something else that I, I skipped over that is quite instructive is there was a, a randomized controlled trial out of Stanford that looked at fiber versus fermented foods. And I thought this was quite an interesting study because they were really interested in how how does fiber versus fermented foods differentially affect the microbiome and more importantly, markers of inflammation, so the immune system. And the take-home points from that study, it was a 10-week study, this was a human study, was that the addition of fermented foods pretty much across the board, this is like kimchi and kefir, sauerkraut, yogurt, etc. These probiotic-rich fermented foods across the board reduced, I think it was 19 markers of inflammation, which was a pleasing result for the, the researchers. It wasn't what they expected. They actually thought that fiber would have that effect. But interestingly, what they saw in the fiber group, Doug, was a very personalized response. And why I think this is interesting is Lane and I have spoken about adding fiber and fiber-rich diets being you know, consistently associated with reduced risk of, of disease. But sometimes you'll hear about people online saying, well, when I add fiber, I, I just don't feel great. Maybe they feel bloated um, or have some abdominal discomfort. And in this study, certain subjects who added fiber did really well and had reduced levels of these inflammatory markers, but other ones didn't. And there were a portion of these subjects who just didn't cope that well with fiber. And when the researchers went back and looked at their baseline diversity, it was those that had low baseline diversity that struggled adding fiber. And we need future studies to, to try and tease out, well, is there a way of, of helping those people? Is there a specific, say, protocol where you can help encourage diversity in their microbiome before ramping up fiber? But what this might speak to is that we're all coming from different starting positions. And perhaps you've been exposed to more antibiotics. Uh, perhaps you exercise less. Perhaps you've been exposed to a lower fiber diet for longer. And so your microbiome is a bit weaker than the next person on social media who added fiber and did really well. And so my advice for people right now is if you are finding that you're trying to add fiber and despite everyone saying how good this is for you, you're not feeling that great. You might be one of those people. And in that case, I like to, to kind of think about this in a similar way to going into the gym, Doug. So if you know, you're a trainer, if you took me into the, the gym and I hadn't been training for two, three years and on day one, you got me to lift an, an incredibly heavy amount on bench press and we just stacked it right up. That wouldn't be a wise thing to do. You know that. You wouldn't do that to me. I might get injured. I might not ever come back and train with you again. I think that I'd think that lifting weights is not for me, right? We've gone too hard. And instead, you would start much, much uh, lighter and slowly, progressively build me up. And, you know, we need further studies to kind of elucidate what is the best protocol. But for now, that's the approach I'd be taking. I love that. And I think that's a good place for us to kind of end part two of this conversation. 
because I just think we covered so much. And I know there's going to be a lot of value in this conversation for people. And they're going to really be able to greater understand like, like how important is gut health and what to pay attention to insulin, exercise, protein, calories in, calories out, and the nuance that goes along with that. So Simon and Lane, I wanted to thank you both once again for your time. This was a long one. This was two hours. If people want to connect with you on social and they want to maybe check out Simon, your podcast lane, they want to check out your app and stuff like that. Like where's the best place for people to connect with you? You can find me on Instagram at Simon Hill and my podcast is The Proof. Find me on social media as BioLane pretty much everywhere. Uh, my website is BioLane.com and I do it all. I could run through everything I do, but since we focused on nutrition and training today, I have a nutrition coaching app called Carbon Diet Coach on iOS and Android. It basically does what a human coach does, but for 10 bucks a month. It's, a, it's an algorithm that we wrote that basically will generate nutritional recommendations for you based on your specific goals and individual metabolism. And then we'll adjust those recommendations based on how you progress, uh, just like a coach would. So it's a great... Great option for people who want to get nutritional support but maybe can't afford a one-on-one nutrition coach. And then our website, biolane.com. I have a research review called Reps where we take five studies every month and break them down in a way that's like palatable and easy to understand for the average person, which I think is a great option for people who are looking to expand their knowledge. And then we also have something called the Workout Builder where basically kind of like our app for nutrition, we kind of take the guesswork out of training. So we have over 50 programs on there that you can adjust. But basically we provide the reps, the sets, the intensity, and then you can kind of select within a framework, select the exercise that you prefer or maybe have access to because not everybody has access to the same stuff. So those are both super popular and a lot of people have given us good reviews. So would highly recommend checking those out. Sweet. And I will make sure to include the links to all that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway, share something that you learned that you're going to implement, share like an aha moment. You're like, wow, I'm so glad that they cleared the air on that. Whether it was something with regards to protein, calories, insulin, gut health, exercise, whatever it was, tag Simon, tag Lane, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.